And as you're being seated, if you would please turn with me and your copies of God's Word to Psalm 103. Psalm 103. If you've been with us for the last several weeks, we have been going through the book of Genesis. Uh, and it will, it will take us some time to get through a book of that length. Uh, so what we've done is I've broken things up into various sections. So we're telling... Uh, the focused parts of each narrative. So as we looked at the first 11 chapters of Genesis, we've seen who is the king of glory, as I called that particular section of Genesis, introducing God the creator, God the judge, God the executioner, God the merciful, God the culture creator. And that's who we've seen in these first 11 chapters of Genesis. And what we will look at next is the promises that he makes and the first of the big ones that we see that will echo through the rest of Scripture is the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 12. But I want that to be a really a special focus as we move forward, and because of the enormity of that, I want to take the time to give that the study and the preparation that it needs. So for this week and for next week, we're going to take a look at a couple of other passages, give us a chance to kind of reset, and then we'll come back into Genesis. Here in Psalm 103, I think what we find is a fitting reaction to everything that we've seen in Genesis chapter 1 through 11, who it is that this God is, and then how it is that he has personally benefited us. So often we are like blind beggars who don't realize we're inside a mansion that's ours. We become forgetful as to who God is because we don't take the time to remind ourselves of it. And that's what's going to be the focus of this psalm is the psalmist, in this case David, telling his soul to remember, to forget not. We're going to explore what that means and how it is that he is presenting it. So... If you would, turn with, your, turn with me, if you haven't already, to Psalm 103. If you're following along in the Pew Bible, that's page number 594. And I will read for us Psalm 103. Listen closely, because this is the word of the Lord. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made his ways, he made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. 
As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it's gone, and his place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's ask the Lord's blessing on our text today. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving to us this prayer, this song of praise to remind us to bless the Lord. I ask that as we give attention here to this psalm, that we would remember to not forget. That we would remember to bless your holy name. Help us to do that even as we listen. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This is a psalm calling us to remember. Calling us to call to mind all of the things that the Lord has done. This is something we have to intentionally do. We are a very forgetful people. We are very much programmed into the what have you done for me lately and refuse to look back on all that has already been done. And what this song, this ancient hymn, this prayer of David, is him encouraging his own soul, the seat of all of whom he is, to bless God. So our point that I'm going to hope that you take away from this, and you can see that this psalm is a masterclass in how to do what I'm about to say here. As you can see in your outline at the back of your prayer guide, which says, feed your joy by meditating on God's steadfast love. Now, how do you do that? Well, David is going to demonstrate it exactly for us. So here, David begins with a, with a command to his own soul, and for us, reading this is a command, is a reminder, we have to command our own selves to bless the Lord. Now, how do you do that? When we tend to think about blessing somebody, we tend to think, of, well, we're giving them something that they didn't have before. Oh, it was a real blessing to receive a dinner from you the other night, or it was a real blessing to have my rent paid. That's typically how we think about this term, blessing. But that's not how this is being used here. 
We don't get, God doesn't need anything from us. We cannot contribute to God something that he doesn't have. He's not a beggar like we are. But what we can do here is by blessing the Lord, as my, my old seminary professors at Beeson had taught me, this is bless has the idea of enriching God's reputation through praise. In the same way, it would kind of work like a reference letter on a job application. If you write a letter of reference to somebody, you're not giving them something they don't already have. In fact, what you're doing is writing down what they already have. But you are enriching their reputation to the person who is thinking about hiring them. And it's like, huh, I hadn't looked at it that way, but I can see how other people view you. You must be a valuable candidate. And in the same way, one of the things that I love about the ministry of desiring God is one of their mission statements of saying that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. If you are full of praise for your Savior, that is the best way to glorify God to other people. When we are sad and dour, and it's like, well, the Lord really hasn't done anything for me, that doesn't bring the Lord a lot of glory. It doesn't mean we can't be honest in our emotions. Of saying, it's like, no, things have been really hard. I am really down. But the Lord is holding me up. We can glorify God both in our happiness and in our sadness by saying, he is all that I have. That's what it means to bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and all that is within me to bless his holy name. Every part of us doing all things to the glory of God, whether we eat or drink in the New Testament. This is blessing the Lord. And this is what he calls us to do. And then when we get into verse 2, he lets us know how to do that. Because sometimes when we're really low, we're like, you know, I feel like the Lord has brought me into all of these hardships, and quite frankly, I don't feel like praising him right now. You've been there? I know some of you have. Some of you have been through a lot. So where do we go from here? Well, the psalmist instructs us. It says to forget not all of his benefits. Now, the word forget here, we tend to, the way we use it is something that slipped out of our mind. I was supposed to announce this, and I forgot. I was supposed to go deliver this thing, but I didn't write it down, so I didn't see it, so I forgot. That's not what he's talking about here, per se. When he's saying about forgetting something, the term forget means not acting on what you know. I know that the Lord has blessed me, but I'm going to act like that's not true. That's how you forget his benefits. You can forget while knowing all of these things are the case, but there's not making it into your heart. You're not acting like it's true. We see that, again, the opposite word of remember. So when we'll say, we'll, we'll see this in many parts of the Old Testament, it says, the Lord remembered Isaac, or the Lord remembered Abraham. It's not God got busy with other things, he needed to do the laundry and then forgot about Abraham. He's just saying, no, he is acting on the thing that he promised him. No, I've kept you in mind all of this time, but now I'm going to act on it. And that's what he's calling us to do here. Remember to not forget. 
Remember to act like these things are true. That's where you move from thinking to believing. When it makes a difference in your life. And then to help us, remember, in case you have forgotten, forgotten, the things that he's done for you, he lists them for you. Forget not all of his benefits, who forgives all of your iniquity. You know, he doesn't have to do that. There is nothing forcing God to forgive our sins. Sometimes we feel like we have to forgive other people because we need other people. It's like, well, I guess we need to bury this hatchet because we're not going to be able to move forward in the office if I don't forgive this person. They'll never support my idea in the board meeting. That's not how God is. He owes you nothing. But he forgives you anyway. He forgives all of your iniquity. And we'll see what that looks like, how much David portrays that as we go forward. So we'll move on. Because we can accept that one because we hear that a lot in church. But then you get to who heals all of your diseases. And we kind of scratch our head. I was like, but I still have diseases. There's something going on with my heart. My back still hurts. How can I say who heals all of your diseases when these things are still in my body? Well, once again, borrowing from my professor, Dr. Ross, he says, forgiving of iniquities in, in total is necessary to have a relationship between God and us. But sometimes he is slower to heal our physical problems because sometimes those bring this relationship closer together. Sometimes the Lord does not heal that bad back because that is what keeps you coming to him. And as hard as it is to imagine that now, some of the pains and the things that we pray for, the hardest to go away in our life, are probably going to be the things we're the most grateful for in heaven. Because we look back and say, that's what kept me close to you. That hardship is what kept me on my knees. This is what showed me who I was. A lot of times we think we're really, really strong until the pain starts. We think that we've got a lot of energy until the Lord really calls on us to do it. Then we were reminded where our strength comes from. It's not from us. Those benefits come from him. So don't forget that. We also can tend to think when we look at that verse who heals all of your diseases, we have a very narrow focus on what our life entails, which is our life is here. It's earth. So you're going to spend a vanishingly small amount of time about, of your life here. Like there's 500 quadrillion years in heaven and beyond. Yes, the first 80 or so years are here. And over there, all your diseases will be healed. You will spend the vast majority of your time totally healed and in bliss if you're in Christ. If you're not in Christ, then this is as good as it gets. But for us, he will heal all of our diseases. And then gets into verse 4, who redeems your life from the pit. This is the, the, the pit would be another word for Sheol or death. There's more that's going to happen here. Death is not the final word for the believer. 
But it goes on from there. It's not just the Lord redeeming you out of the pit. That would be enough. But instead, he then crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. You'll see that word steadfast love show up a lot. This is God's covenant love, which we'll talk about a lot uh, when we get into Genesis chapter 12 and what it means to have a covenant with God, an unbreakable promise that God has. He crowns us with this. And then as if all of that weren't enough, we get into verse 5, who then satisfies you with good. Hebrew there is, fills your mouth with good. So that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Everything good we have, everything we have, comes from God. And that he is satisfying us with good things. You know, when we're parents and we give things to our children, we are always aiming to give them good things. But sometimes we find out what we thought was a good thing turned out to not be a very good thing. We make those mistakes. God does not. God does not give us things that will hurt our ultimate relationship with him. Everything that he brings into your life is meant to be this narrowing wall to bring you closer to him. That's the whole point of everything that happens in your life. That doesn't mean there won't be hard things. That doesn't mean that some of the gifts from the Lord are like surgeries. Where there's pain and blood and tears. But God is not vindictive. God is not like the child with a magnifying glass. God is a benevolent father who crowns you with steadfast love. That's what the psalmist is wanting us to do. Now we spend a lot of time here in these first five verses. This is a summary of all the things that are about to follow here as he unpacks what all of these things mean and what this has meant for them in history. And that's when he begins to go as we head into verses 6 through 8. says that the Lord works, note the present there, continuing to do so, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. And remember, this is a, an Israelite audience primarily that's hearing this. They remember who they were, slaves in Egypt for four centuries. He's worked justice for them. They know what kind of God he is. And in verse 7, he's made his ways, he made known his ways to Moses and his acts to the people of Israel. This should call to mind all the things that happened to them in the wilderness and the times when they were conquering all these lands that God had given to them. And now under David, sitting under this beautiful kingdom and rule. And then they're reminded here in verse 8, says, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Now, that is not the only place that that verse shows up. This is a quote from earlier in the Bible. Exodus 34, 6 and 7, which is where we first hear that, where the Lord is proclaiming who he is to the people. Now, do you know what the people had just done? As we get this, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The chapter before that, 
Exodus 33 is when all the Israelites had abandoned God and were worshiping a calf of gold. Committing spiritual adultery right in front of Mount Sinai. Do you think that's a comforting thing to have heard after that? The Lord is merciful and gracious? I'll bet. The Lord would have been justified in these first two commandments. Didn't even get through the first two. That you've broken my covenant, I can just annihilate you and I'll start anew with Moses here. At least Moses is doing what I'm asking him to do. We'll just get rid of all these other problem people because it's not like that was the only thing that they did or would do. But the Lord is merciful and gracious. Does that comfort you? Does me. I need verse 8 to be true. I've sinned in this pulpit. I need his steadfast love. And that's exactly who he promises to be. And it goes on. And we get into verse 9, that he will not always chide. It's translated here, could also be translated you know, like, like suing for justice, suing in a court of law. He's not always going to be pursuing judgment. Nor will he keep his anger forever. Now this does not mean that hell is not a real place or that hell doesn't go on for eternity. We have many other passages in the New Testament that point exactly to that reality. But what he's saying is here on earth, he's not angry forever. But in fact, he will, as we've just said, he is merciful and gracious. And then in verse 10, even in his anger, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. You know how merciful God is to you all the time? Usually we don't have a sense of how offensive our sin is. Because we do it all the time. We become numb to it. But just ask him, but... Notice what happens in your heart when someone does to you what you do to them. All of a sudden, it's a much more serious offense, isn't it? It's something that needs to be dealt with. But with the Lord, it's not in proportion. Every sin deserves immediate and eternal punishment in hell. Every single one of them. The little moments of pride, even as you preach... Hell forever. But the Lord doesn't respond that way. Instead, he gives us another chance and another chance and another chance. Do you know why Israel was in Egypt for 400 years? He was giving all the people in the land of the cursed line of Canaan, giving them 400 years to repent. Over and over and over again. They're sacrificing their children to false gods. It's like, I'll give you another couple centuries. That's how merciful our God is. We need to remember that. We're way too quick to just like, oh, well, this is happening because just God's just mean and angry with me. No, come on. 
Four centuries of mercy. However long you've been alive, that's the number of years he has given you. That's mercy. Remember so that you don't forget that. Act like that's true. So that when you have a burden of sin, you don't try to run away and fix it yourself. No, take it to a God who's gracious and merciful, who's crowned you with steadfast love. Let him take care of that. He'll not turn you away. You don't need to fix yourself. You can't anyway. Come to a God who's gracious and merciful. Do you know why he doesn't deal with you according to your sins? It's not because you saw it and decided, well, you know what, I'm going to turn, turn my life around here. That's not what it says. It does not say he does not repay us according to our, to our iniquities, for our effort is as high as the heavens. That is not what it says. It has nothing to do with you at all. It says, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. What does it mean to fear the Lord? Does it mean to be quaking under the idea of judgment? No. Does it mean quaking in awe of who he is? Yes. The Lord is holy and very different from you and me. That should give us a certain amount of, oh, okay. I mean, we approach other human beings that have made their living smiling in front of a camera, saying things that they don't believe. We get starstruck. Over people. Here is calling us to a God who loves you terrifyingly a lot. And then he goes in verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. You know why he picked that direction, east and west, and not north and south? Eventually, if you keep going north, eventually you'll come around to the south. You'll see it again. And going around and around. You can travel as far east or west as you want. And you will always be going either west or east. It's the only directions that never meet each other. So he is saying as far apart as those are, which is infinite, is as far away as he has taken away your sins. Do you get that? Like, if, if, if you've wandered away here, like, tune back in with me. If you get nothing else, get this here. Like, God has taken away your sins because of Jesus. They are gone. Gone. Not like deleted in the computer and maybe we can find them again if you try hard enough. No, it's gone. That alone should give you enough to bless the Lord. You are not guilty before God if you are in Christ. If you have turned away from that sin that's dragging you down and put your trust in Jesus and Jesus alone, your sins are gone. You don't have to feel guilty about them anymore. Because God himself has pulled them away. There's no higher authority here. If God says you're forgiven, it doesn't matter what anybody else says. This is a great blessing. And he does it like a father shows compassion to his children. 
It's just way better at it than we are. Sometimes we as fathers are not all that compassionate. It's hard to be compassionate at three in the morning. The Lord is compassionate at three in the morning. He's the ultimate father. Again, showing compassion to those who fear him. Those whom he has changed their hearts to be in awe of him. And then I love in verse 14. For he knows our frame. He knows that we are dust. Remember we talked about that? Genesis 1 and 2. That it was theologically correct to call one another dirt bags. The dust people. That's who we are. And the Lord remembers that. And he is compassionate on it. This is not to say that he excuses sin or thinks that sin's no big deal. No, he put his son to death over your sin. Don't hear that. But what he does here is saying, I know my people. I know what they're like. So I'm going to help them. Not excuse. I'm going to forgive. That's what he's doing for us. And the psalmist helps bring this up. We've been talking about God here for all of these verses. What are we like? Well, we're like grass. Like a flower that shows up in your yard. It's there for what, a week? A harsh wind goes by and it's gone. You wouldn't even be able to find that that's where the flower was if you were looking. There's not even like an empty space where that flower used to be. It's just gone. That's us. We're real fleeting. That's why it's hard for us to imagine what we have in verse 17, that God's steadfast love is from everlasting to everlasting. As far back as anything and as forward as anything, that's how big God's love is for you. We don't think like that. I started in 1991. That's as far back as I go. We're all desperately temporary. When we think about our, one of our oldest members who just passed away recently, Clyde Ash, when she was born, there was a whole different set of human beings on earth. All of those people that were alive when Miss Clyde was born are almost statistically all gone in the lifetime of one person that we know. And the same will be true after me. We're all temporary, but God is not. Most of all, his love is not temporary, but it's steadfast and eternal, even to children's children. He remembers and honors people's children just because of who he loved earlier. That's how much he loves us. And we'll see this more as we get into covenant in Genesis 12. And then finally, the psalmist reminds us that he has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. We don't worship because we could think, especially at this time, this would have been the prevailing idea, that you had a tribal deity who could be great as long as you were in the border. Once he got out of there, the deity's jurisdiction was over. Baal could only be nice to you as long as you were here. But here what he says, is this God that loves you from everlasting to everlasting, who has a compassionate heart like a father, who remembers who you are as dust? He is everywhere and rules everything. Doesn't matter where you go on earth. He rules. So then the call goes out. 
as the psalmist winds up his calls to praise. And he comes even to the angels, the mighty ones. We have a really neutered concept of what an angel is. I blame Hallmark. The cards that had these little cherubs, these little tiny wings, these very non-threatening people. Like an angel was terrifying and glorious. I mean, when John is writing in Revelation, remember, John was one of the people that has seen the transfigured Christ. And when he sees an angel in Revelation, he has to be told not once but twice to not worship him. These are glorious creatures that is hard for us to get a mind wrapped around. And David is saying, you guys need to be worshiping him. All you who do his work, bless the Lord. You mighty creatures that we can hardly get our heads around, bless the Lord. And then finally he gets in verse 22, in all places, all of his works, the sun, the moon, the stars, the chickens, the crickets, And then especially that last line, bless the Lord, O my soul. We don't get to stand back and say, it's like, you know what? You all should be getting involved in this. This is a pretty good person we got going here. Y'all should be praising him. No, you're not out of that line. Have some humility and join the rest of the world in praising our God. It's a call to us, not just a general call to other people. That's probably a good idea. No, you, Norwood, sitting in those pews, and me, sitting behind this pulpit, bless the Lord, O my soul. And that's just what David had. What else might there be to say When this God, with the compassion of a father, sends his son to live among us, who got up off the throne of heaven, not giving up his rule, but giving up his privilege to live as one of us, to live the life that we should have lived, so that he can die the death that we should have died, to forgive us of all of our sins. And take them away as far as the east is from the west. That wasn't something that God did just by clicking his fingers. This is something he did at great sacrifice to himself. The Lord got involved. God didn't just write a check. He came down and got his hands dirty. With his own blood. Didn't stop there. He rose from the dead. And promises us that he will raise us up in a similar way. So what do we take away from all of this? This song. And its completion in Christ. If I can have you take away from anything from this. Is you are very forgetful. I am very forgetful. As Paul Tripp calls it, we all have gospel amnesia. So you have to constantly remind yourself. There is something about liturgy. There is something about a daily practice. Because we daily forget. So remind yourself. 
before your feet hit the floor tomorrow morning, remind yourself and forget not all of God's benefits to you. This would be a wonderful psalm to memorize. It's been set to music, I don't know how many times. Sing it to yourself if that helps. But if you are not remembering, you are forgetting. And even if, like good little Presbyterians, you've got all that catechism and that confession and all those things crammed into your head, if you're not acting on it, you might as well forget it. Knowledge, just being knowledge, does not equal maturity. Knowing a bunch of stuff does not make you spiritual. What does it do to you? That's the difference between remembering and forgetting. So please, oh my soul and your soul, remember to not forget. Let's pray. Oh, our Heavenly Father, we have such forgetful souls. We get so easily taken in by other things. I pray that you would help us to not forget. You would help us to remember to not forget. And I pray that you would use these things that you have given to us to change us, to make us new, so that we may glorify you and bless your name. We ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.